Hello, this is Dr. Jim Polk, and welcome to An Amazing Career. This podcast is all about equipping you with phenomenal skills, habits, and a mindset that'll redefine your limits and help you achieve your maximum potential in your career and in your life away from work. I'm an executive and career coach, as well as a neuropsychologist with over 40 years experience helping people achieve greatness. So strap in, get ready, and take notes, and prepare to learn how to have an amazing career. Have you ever been stuck? I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, no matter who you are. So why am I asking? Because today I'd like you to stop and consider if you or someone you know are stuck. People get stuck and we seem to be pretty good at it. We get stuck in a rut, stuck in the past, or stuck in our heads. Goodreads has a list of 123 quotes on being stuck. My favorite, and one that actually happened to me, getting my hands stuck in a cookie jar. We get stuck in a bad marriage, stuck in traffic, and oh, we get stuck in dead-end careers. And that leads me to my client, Bob. I met Bob for the first time in a shared dining space where my offices in Washington, D.C. were. I was getting ready to destroy my stomach with a sandwich I just microwaved. While it was being nuked, I heard my wife's voice telling me I was making my food radioactive and that no good could come from it. She doesn't like microwaves, doesn't trust them when we don't have one at home. Yet another story for another time. Where was I now? Right. I was getting ready to tear into that sandwich when I heard someone over my shoulder ask, You're that executive coaching guy, right? I turned, honestly just a little annoyed. I was really hungry and had another client in 10 minutes, but I answered proudly, Yes, that's me. I'm Jim. He stuck out his hand and we shook, and he said in a hushed tone, I guess because there were other people around, I'm Bob, and I was wondering whether we could talk sometime. Well, sure, I said. What about? He answered back, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but I feel like the most highly paid paralegal in the world. I replied, well, no, I've never heard that before, but are you? He laughed and said, no, I'm an attorney and have an office just a few doors down the hallway from you. I have three working for me, though. I was wondering if we could talk about my career sometime. I've been trying to make some changes, but I don't seem to get anywhere. I'm feeling stuck. We scheduled an appointment for the following week, and I ate half of that sandwich before rushing off to my client. People get stuck, and being stuck has a negative meaning, right? You never hear about someone being stuck in a good marriage. But people can get stuck in situations that aren't all bad. Someone can get stuck in a situation with both good and bad pieces to it. And I guess being stuck implies that we'd like to get out of that situation at some level. In today's episode, we're going to explore the different situations people get themselves stuck in, mostly having to do with their career. We'll dive into the myriad reasons people get themselves stuck, and there's a lot of them, why they stay stuck, and then talk about ways to get unstuck. And as a preview, I'll let you know that the big three reasons people get stuck are security, familiarity, and comfort. What to do? We have some great ideas and solutions, so stick around. I'm Dr. Jim Polk, and this is an amazing career. Bob was successful. He'd graduated from a prestigious Ivy League university and earned his law degree at one of the top five law schools in the U.S. Well, I know that because he told me he was very proud of it. He'd known since high school that he wanted to practice law. During his undergrad years, he volunteered at the ACLU and Amnesty International. During law school, he did practicums with the ACLU and with Human Rights Watch. Looking back, Bob recalls these practicums had given him feelings of connection, significance, and high self-esteem. 
he was making a positive difference in the world. As he neared graduation, he started getting calls from a few New York high-rolling law firms that paid really well right out of the gate. His wife pushed him to go for the money rather than what he really loved. He'd been focused on human rights and dreamt of a position with a human rights organization. They didn't pay well, not at all, but the work really enticed him. Then his family, friends, and professors pushed him towards the money, telling him he could do human rights work in his spare time or make his nest egg first and down the road get back to what he thought he loved. His wife really craved security and prestige, and Bob wanted to make her happy. So with all this and nobody urging him to go for what he really loved, he gave in and went for the money. Time went by, and there wasn't any spare time for anything, much less human rights work. Bob was successful. After 14 years, he was a senior VP with a large firm earning just over 400 k He had a large corner office overlooking the National Mall, a secretary, and three paralegals working for him. He was still married and had two children. Life looked great, and was in many ways, but Bob had been masking some pain. In high school and college, Bob had been in a small band, learning to play drums, which he loved. He'd been a long-distance runner, a rock climber, and he'd taken some flying lessons as well. He loved the beach in the early mornings, and had always dreamt of living near a warm ocean. He wasn't doing any of these when we met. What he was doing was drinking too much, staying up late, smoking cigarettes in secret, going to strip clubs, and spending way too much time on OnlyFans. Bob was bored, not doing any of the things that had once given him a natural high, and he was hurting himself with his lifestyle choices. He was working 50 hours a week, running the children to activities in the evenings and on weekends, answering emails on weekends and on rare vacations. His friends were confined to the couple of guys he frequented the strip clubs with, nothing close to the life he thought he'd be living. He was shuffling paper all day long and told me, I help make wealthy people richer. So him feeling like a well-paid paralegal wasn't too far off. He wasn't getting any of the feelings of connection, high self-esteem, or feeling that what he did mattered like he was doing something positive to make this world a better place. He did try to get a little crazy once and thought of buying a Tesla, but gave it up when his wife told him he was having an early midlife crisis and forbade it. He didn't like arguing, and he actually started to think that maybe she was right. They did have it all. A few million in savings and stocks, a gorgeous home in a rich neighborhood, memberships at a swanky golf club, although he didn't have time for golf, and a prestigious title his wife loved to throw around. Bob hadn't minded this for many years. He was chasing that nest egg. But now that he finally had it, he didn't have any purpose left. He'd taken to getting his excitement from his secret, unhealthy lifestyle choices I talked about earlier. He asked me for help. There's lots of opinions on what makes people tick. But one that I've come to believe is that people chase security, familiarity, and comfort. They chase these before anything else in our society, leaving things like love, connection, significance, growth, and even happiness on the shelf. The most common is security. People tend to place security above everything else, and it's easy to understand. Taking a chance and changing careers is a risk. The possibility of losing that great salary and benefits can be scary. And even if you are okay with the risk, maybe your spouse or partner aren't. 
having money for food, shelter, safety from harm, people will stay in a bad situation just to have security. And sometimes if they have that, everything else is secondary. People also like familiarity, which is tied with comfort for second place. We tend to like things that are familiar because unfamiliar things can be dangerous. They can make us anxious, and people enjoy being comfortable. We avoid pain. So people chase security, familiarity, and comfort. And when any of these are threatened, we become afraid. Fear is a huge motivator, I believe the biggest in our culture. This relates to getting stuck. We can get ourselves stuck in a situation out of fear that any big change could bring things crashing down. Being in a situation that's familiar is less scary than the thought of something unknown. What if a career change makes things worse? And even if we don't like our job, if it's giving us comfort, like a nice home, car, food, vacations, people usually stay because being comfortable is great. And people will stay in a dead-end, boring career situation because they worry about financial security being lost if they make a change. This is how craving security, familiarity, and comfort can keep people trapped or stuck in a bad career. Looking good is the next big thing that keeps people stuck. Looking good is how we think we look to everyone else. Our culture's big on driving the right car. I remember in high school how we guys identified with our cars, how we used them as a status symbol. Well, don't tell anyone, but most guys still do. But we have to wear the right clothes, eat at the right restaurant, and have our office in the right part of town. And you don't want to be from the wrong side of the tracks. If our job and career are providing us with the resources to live the good life, then we're hesitant to walk away and risk losing it with a new career. What if we fail? People don't like failure. We tend to think of failure as something that happens to bad, lazy, or stupid people. So if we've done well, we don't want to take a chance of losing that great image we have of ourselves. Next on the list is something called systemic change resistance. Sounds complicated, right? It did to me when I first heard the term, but it's actually quite simple and quite powerful. For some, the most powerful of all the things that can keep someone stuck. People tend not to like change. Remember about familiarity. Familiar is good, safe, to be relied on. Systemic resistance is people actively trying to stop you from changing and growing, and it works in several ways. First, you have friends and family, and they like you just the way you are. They don't want you to change. The person you are, the things you do, the way you act, they like that. So when someone tries to change, they resist it and may even try to sabotage you, not out of anything malevolent, just simply because they like you the way you are. They aren't sure they'll like any new version of you. Second, resistance to your changing can happen because people might be jealous or envious of you because they start to feel like they should be growing or changing as well. When they see you trying to improve yourself, up your game, shift careers, it can make them feel bad about themselves because they aren't up to improving themselves yet. I've experienced this at least once in my life. I grew up in a factory town where everyone, and I mean everyone, worked in the factory. Both of my grandparents, my parents, my cousins, uncles, and even some aunts, as well as my brother. I recall being eight and taking the class trip to one of the local factories, which turned out to be the one my father worked in. At the end of the day, I went home and told my parents that there was no way I wanted to work in that factory. 
Looking back, I recall the sadness on my father's face. I set off for college and didn't get any support. I was on my own. There were almost countless times when a crisis would pop up at home and everyone wanted me to drop my books and return. And when I visited, people in the family and some old friends treated me like an alien, saying that I felt they weren't good enough for me anymore. I gave in a couple of times during college and actually worked in one of the town factories for a while after my dad made some calls to get me a job. The money was actually really good and enticing, but ultimately it wasn't good enough of a lure. Maybe some of you may have had something similar happen to you, where family tried to dissuade you from doing what you really wanted. The third reason people might not want you to change is fear. They can worry that if you do change, one, you might not like them or need them anymore. They can feel abandoned. And two, you might jeopardize their security, comfort, or status if you make a big change. We're going to see later how Bob's wife was operating out of fear. Fear is a powerful motivator, and I've seen it cripple people's growth and career changes more times than I can recall. Another thing that can keep people stuck is a lack of belief in oneself or self-limiting beliefs. Some people have low self-esteem regarding their ability to succeed at something else. They may feel like a fraud, that they got to where they are just out of luck, or that they don't really deserve their success and they're waiting for the bottom to fall out. So they freeze. And there are times when people have been doing what they do for so long that they're not sure they can do anything else. And just the thought of trying causes anxiety. For clients in this position, I ask them, if today were the last day of your life, do you want to do what you're about to do today? If the answer is no, then they have their answer. They want something else. And then the task is to help them determine whether their fears of failure are justified or real. Most of the time, our worries aren't concerned with real dangers so much as they are about what might happen. The way around that is to make a plan, which is the best antidote for fear. A plan that includes the steps needed to get to that new career, along with a plan to handle any roadblocks that might get in their way. Passivity is another thing that can keep us stuck. This is about letting someone else make our decisions for us. Happens all the time. Some of these people are conflict-averse, doing whatever they can to avoid an argument. And some folks are wired to put their own needs on hold because they have low self-worth. I've had clients like this, and putting them through some assertiveness training can help a lot. Teaching them to believe they're worthwhile and how to cope with the anxiety that pops up during a push-pull situation or disagreements with someone. We've examined the myriad ways people can get themselves stuck and some reasons for that. Every person is unique, and we all get stuck somewhere from time to time. We've touched on security, familiarity, and comfort, looking good, others' resistance to your change, people's self-limiting beliefs, and passivity. So let's check in with Bob and see which of these are playing a significant role in his world. A few minutes ago, I touched on the pros and cons in Bob's life. Yes, he was making good money, has his nest egg, a nice family, and prestige. He lives in a great neighborhood and belongs to the right club. His wife was extremely happy with their lot in life, and she enjoyed her own great career, doing as well or better than Bob. 
but he was miserable. He didn't like his job, didn't like not being able to do the things that truly gave him joy, and he really didn't like sneaking around doing unhealthy lifestyle habits. He also missed the feelings of connection and purpose that his human rights practicums had given him. So Bob made a decision, actually a set of them. He decided to begin moving towards trying to shift and improve his life. So our first step was for him to create a vision for his future. We went through a thorough process of him painting a picture of what he wanted his life to look like in one year and then five years down the road. His vision included his career, where he was living and with whom, what he was doing in his spare time, what his relationships looked like, and even what he'd see when he first opened his eyes in the morning. He also made some decisions about how he would feel emotionally in his future world, and how he would hold himself as a man, and what things were most important to him. He decided he wanted to have a legal practice of his own or with an NGO or government organization, working on human rights. He also wanted to be living in a warmer climate, spending time with hobbies like playing drums, improving his golf game, and running, and he decided to begin training to run a marathon. He'd make friends outside of his strip club group and get healthier. Like I always do with clients, I wanted to get Bob in shape before he started to make big changes in his career and his home life. He was slowly killing his physical health and doing things with his time that he said thought were less than honorable but which excited him. So we began with teaching him some meditation techniques and him committing to 10 minutes every morning and then 5 to 10 minutes any other time of the day using an app called 10%, my favorite, by the way. It has classes with video and audio by world-class meditation leaders. I use it sometimes and I'm especially distracted. I almost always get clients to commit to either meditation or a meditative practice because I'm usually having them either give up something they've been using to calm anxiety or having them implement some change in their life that can cause anxiety. As an aside, Ray Dalio, a billionaire investor who created Bridgewater Associates, one of the most successful hedge funds ever, famously says that meditation more than anything in my life was the biggest ingredient of whatever success I've had. Well, if it works for Ray Dalio, not going to argue with that. After Bob had been meditating for two weeks, he began implementing other changes, folding them in slowly over the course of a couple of months. To start with, we tackled his smoking. He implemented a plan and was tobacco-free after three months. He committed to no alcohol Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday nights, and eventually, over the course of a couple of months, committed to no alcohol Sunday evening through Thursday evening, and to limit himself to no more than three drinks a day. To get his running started, he decided to join a running club near his neighborhood and ran in the mornings every other day. He also cut down OnlyFans to just once a month and strip clubs to once a quarter. No judgment here, please. People have all sorts of things in their lives, and trying to make someone feel guilty wouldn't be in his best interest and it should be noted he doesn't do either of those anymore at all. So now that we had a vision statement to work with and healthy practices being implemented, it was time to examine what got him stuck before starting to implement any moves towards his new career. First, we looked at security, familiarity, and comfort. These didn't appear to have much impact on Bob. He was fine financially, so he was secure and familiarity was what Bob wanted to get away from. 
The next area was looking good, and again, Bob wasn't very concerned about this. He did enjoy the corner office and the swanky golf club. But he wasn't as tied to them as he was the idea of a career that made him feel alive. Systemic resistance to change played a big role in Bob's life and in his career change, primarily from his wife. Now it's true, Bob was resisting change, but it was because of his self-limiting beliefs and passivity. But his wife had a lot of influence over him. Bob's wife had a very lucrative, comfortable, and prestigious career. She was happy with their home, the children's schools, the golf club, and their neighbors. She'd put a lot of effort into convincing Bob that his desire for change was just a crisis that he should muscle through. She felt that he should just keep at it with his firm and retire in another 15 years or so. She didn't want any changes. This combined with Bob's tendency to be passive in his relationship with her was a powerful force that kept him stuck. But even greater was Bob's low self-worth. Fear and self-limiting beliefs bundled together seemed to be Bob's Achilles' heel. Despite all of his successes through life, Bob felt that somehow he was just lucky. And he worried, a lot, how he'd feel if he tried to make the career change and failed. He wasn't worried about security, looking good, or comfort. He worried about how he'd feel when he looked in the mirror. Bob had actually been holding himself back somewhat over the years by sabotaging himself, just a little, just enough to keep himself from shining too brightly. He almost bragged that he was a procrastinator, and while he did great work, he was always just a little tardy. He'd actually had a review with the senior partners, and they identified this trait as that one trait that would keep him from becoming a senior partner. Bob revealed that he often felt guilty for his success, especially around his family, who most all to a person had financial and social problems. He actually felt like apologizing at times for doing so well. Labeling himself as a procrastinator was a way of giving up control of the situation. Well, I'm a procrastinator, he told me. Always have been, so what can I do? He was punishing himself. Perfect self-limiting belief. So Bob practiced his meditation, cleaned up his lifestyle, and stayed in counseling with me to work on his self-esteem, passivity, and fear of failure. He worked on his communication skills and honed his vision statement, then presented it all to his wife. Bob had decided to give up moving to a warm climate, living near the beach. His dream had been Miami. Instead, he and his wife compromised and they made plans to buy a condo on the ocean in Florida where they could spend a few weeks every year and Bob could escape two from time to time. He decided instead of working for an NGO that he wanted a job on the Hill, another dream he'd had a long time ago, having a job affecting national policy on important issues. He found out quickly, though, that those jobs were rare and the competition was fierce. So long story short, he applied for and got a fellowship working for a U.S. senator from his original home state. It'd last six months and give him a chance to see what life on the hill was like. The only downside was the pay. He'd be earning about 25000 during the fellowship, whereas he'd be making around 200000 during the same time if he stayed with his current employer, and that was huge. But Bob had decided he needed the fellowship if he had any hope of landing a real high-paying position later on. Together, he and his wife decided they could afford it, and he made the leap. Bob only has one life, as do we all, and he needed to give it a shot or forever wonder what if. 
It made me think of a quote I read somewhere once. Those that overcome their fears in hopes of something new and greater, they are the ones who are most likely to be successful. So Bob completed the six-month position, maintaining his improved lifestyle and enjoying an improved relationship with his wife, now that he had learned to be assertive. Their love life improved as well, and his children enjoyed telling people that their dad worked for a U.S. senator. But the fellowship didn't work out. He decided he didn't like the politics in real life as much as on television. It was also made clear that any personal time he thought he might have would disappear. Working on the Hill, even with equal money, would mean he wouldn't have time for drums, running, and a marathon, time at the beat, and it would give him less time with his wife and children. And the road to get a job making even half of what he'd previously been earning seemed like it would take too many years. So what now? Was this a failure? Well, Bob thought so at first, but then realized how much better he felt having had the courage to strike out to chase a dream. He felt alive, assertive, in control, and proud of himself for taking a chance. Another long story abbreviated, Bob made the decision to open his own law firm, specializing in something he was quite good at and enjoyed. He made the decision from the very start that he'd work no more than 25 hours a week. Now, he was lucky because he had that nest egg, so some people might say that he did the right thing slaving away for those 14 years. We'll never know. But now he has three other attorneys working for him as part-time contractors and a virtual assistant to help run things. And he just picked up his third major client. He has more than enough work coming in his way. And because of all this, he's working 10 hours a week for Amnesty International gratis. He enjoys those 10 hours more than anything and feels connected and good about himself again. He's making almost twice the money, working 25 hours a week, and does it from home. He plays the drums three times a week, runs every morning with a great group of people, plays golf every other week at a fancy club, and his game has improved. And he just ran a full marathon and plans on doing another in two years. He and his wife are closer than ever. He's stopped going to the strip clubs, wasting time online, and still isn't smoking. And he's continued to reduce his alcohol intake at the time of this podcast, and he says that he's proud of himself. Again, all because he took a chance. He admitted he needed help, made a plan, and followed it, and finally has a life he always dreamt of. If you'd like to find out more about what we're up to at An Amazing Career, check us out at drjimpolk.com. And if you're interested in a free assessment of your career, send us an email to drjimpolk at protonmail.com, ask for the job satisfaction scale and the career assessment inventory, and we'll send them right away. You can also ask for our free ebook, Unchained, How to Create an Amazing Career. I'm Dr. Jim Polk, and this has been an amazing career. See you next week when I'll be talking about the importance of having a clear vision for what you want from life and how to get one, and how that can help you with any career transition or any other major changes you'd like to make.